This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about globalisation and the effects it has had on Ireland and other countries around the world over the last 50 years or so. In each programme we interview a person from another country or with strong connections to another country to get their unique perspective on globalisation as it has affected them, the country they live in and its relationship with the wider world. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both from me and from my interviewees from around the world. In recent programmes, we have visited many countries around the world, and today we're going back across the Atlantic to Orlando, Florida, to speak with Stefan Bungart, who is the global head of digitisation for Siemens Power Generation Services, where he leads product and market strategy, partnerships, channel development and customer projects. Stefan is originally from Germany and has lived and worked in the US, UK, Ireland, Germany, Switzerland, Hong Kong and Singapore. Previous positions that Stefan has held uh, included Head of European Internet of Things, Business Development for Cisco Manufacturing Industries. He has also worked for General Electric, Deutsche Telekom, IBM. And uh, Stefan and I originally met around 1997 when he was living in Ireland and I had just returned to Ireland uh, after a 10-year stint living in Spain. And our paths have crossed again recently on LinkedIn. And I think we may be seeing him again soon around these parts, as he might tell us a little later uh, more about that in the interview. So I am delighted uh, to have Stefan join us on the line from Orlando, Florida. So, Stefan, over the last 20 years or so, you've worked with a succession of very noteworthy companies such as IBM, GE, Cisco, Deutsche Telekom and so on. And I saw a video of you online giving a talk about the future of work and you describe yourself as a job nomad or a project worker. What are these concepts and how do you see the future of work developing for people over the next 5, 10 or 15 years? When I started uh, off in, in, in working life, uh, very early on, career was defined as a linear succession of promotions, most like us, and uh, along one path of expertise. So if you had you know, studied or learned something about supply chain, you would be in supply chain and you'd be there all your life. And I do know people that actually had exactly that career. My career has been very, very different. And I think my career reflects more what we see and, uh, and experience in, in uh, today's work environment. And that is a series of projects that may be very different in nature and have nothing to do with your original uh, specialization or what you have learned in school or uh, at university, but rather um, you know, a series of projects that allow you to gather skills um, and very different skills and experiences that enable you to handle complexity and decisions, um, whether they are related to your original area of expertise or not. And in my working life, I have worked in um, transport, logistics, but also marketing, uh, finance, and other projects. And um, lately, of course, started to uh, really specialize around strategy for um, digital um, technology applications uh, and how that can transform uh, businesses and business models. And, um, and so I think that the modern, the modern, well, it's not even a concept, I think it just emerged, is that, um, you know, your, your long-term career as a series of promotions is dead. Mm -hmm. 
what it has been replaced with is a succession of projects that may be very different in nature and that require you to learn every and each time and um, and that over time allow you to handle more complex um, you know things and is this are you an unusual beast if you like in the corporate world as a job nomad a project worker or are there many people like you in corporate life today I don't think I'm unusual. I think that there are many colleagues, uh, when I talk to them, they reflect similar sentiments. When I talk to uh, other um, people working across the globe in jobs similar to mine, or at least in in, um, non-administrative jobs, you hear very similar experiences. Younger people very much reflect the same with all the advantages and disadvantages and the the risks associated with it we had a i had a discussion recently around this um and someone pointed out that while it was true that working life and and career was kind of changing in that way and that it was more the, the model that kind of started to emerge it also exposed people to risks that they were not exposed to before, both um, in terms of their, um, you know, their, their, the, the stress, the, the experiences, but also the financial risks involved in, in this. Um, you, you can't plan your life the same way that you may have been able to do 25 years ago or your parents were able to do. And uh, you don't have the, j- the same security in life that maybe your parents um, enjoyed, you know? And, um, and, and, and they also pointed out that uh, um, maybe when you look at uh, more regular administrative jobs, then again, that variability would not be experienced the same way. Having said that, I believe that my um, way of working and uh, the kind of project nature of work is not unusual it's it's actually becoming um something that is very normal yeah so we've got this on the one hand this changing nature of work on the other hand we have the technological advances the digitization of business internet of things the confluence of many technologies now robotics analytics uh, artificial intelligence and so on so w- where is the human actor in all of this do you, do you see this technology ultimately replacing humans wholesale or augmenting their capabilities? So I don't think that the technologies um, that we currently have replace humans. And I also don't think that humans generally will be replaced with whatever technology uh, follows uh, in future. I do think that the relationship um, between humans and technology and the interaction and the way we um, we we integrate with technology changes. It's already changing around us without us really knowing. Um, and uh, and what we what we did 20 years ago is not what we do today. And we don't even notice that it is very different and that we do very different uh, jobs and we use technology in very different ways. And I think that is going to continue. And um, I also think that there are activities that will be replaced. Um, by technology and are already being replaced by technology today. One example are 
more administrative repetitive tasks that we replace with software that allows us to kind of remove the requirement for data entry, for example, or, you know, simple um, transactions and managing simple processes. Uh, that can all be done by software today. And, and as software sophistication grows, more complex tasks can also be taken on. Um, we see also, you know, that impacting traditional jobs. Now, one, one good example, Uber versus taxi drivers. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> Uber, basically, a taxi driver wouldn't have thought that software actually attacks his business model, right? And, but it does. And, and so we'll, we'll see that. And, um, but I don't think that, that humans ultimately get replaced um, by that. That would be a very utopian uh, scenario. Um, you know, even Star Trek didn't kind of go that far. Uto um, utopian so, or even dystopian, maybe, yeah? Dystopian, maybe, <laughs> yes. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, what, what we consider work and what is involved in working, that will change, Yeah. right? It, yeah. it won't be what we understand it to be today and, and what, it, what we understand it to be today wasn't what we understood it to be 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, and 20 years from now, again, we say, I work, but what that means will be different. Sure. And, and so therefore, the impact on people's requirements for learning, education and, and training, so both people like us who are mature and, and have a, a career or we're on a career path and people who are coming in as, as children, young adults in terms of their, their learning, what would you be advising your own children, for example? Children and young people in particular are already growing up in a very different um, uh, relationship with technology and they use technology in, in, in very much more symbiotic ways than, than we uh, at our age would probably do. And so I am not so worried about, you know, structured learning it's experiential learning that these these younger people um have that helps them deal and actually really make good use of technology and um and for us older uh people uh that have probably more experience uh, in life but at the same time also not had that kind of very kind of uh, uh, very close relationship with technology as we grew up uh, it is a more structured and deliberate effort to open ourselves up to the possibilities and not kind of, you know, to come to the immunity um, to change that, that is inherent in all of us. Cost, I think, like two, three dollars a piece. And today you, you get them for a sub cent prices. And RFID tech haven't changed the way we do. Um, we, we organize ourselves in warehouses or, you know, to track, to track uh, goods. So... The reassuring thing about logistics and supply chain for me is that at the end of the day, we are still dealing with physical activities. You know, at, mm -hmm. With all the data layers and all the sophistication and all the analytics on top of it, at the end of the day, it is still the process of getting things from one place to another place in an ideal way. And that will not go away. What we have seen is that companies invest in um, productivity tools. We, we, for example, we use uh, software to uh, do pattern um, uh, analytics uh, in, in, our, in our data, i.e. we capture data from across our supply chain uh, and have it analyzed to identify changing patterns in supply and demand and then uh, suggest strategies for adjusting the, um, the infrastructure, like is that warehouse still in the right place? Should we move it somewhere else? You know, is it 
is it even right to have like five warehouses or do you want three? Questions like that um, become easier to answer. And, and you can even, even sort of with uh, um, the, the, the part of the infrastructure that is uh, more physical, you, you, you can become more flexible and adaptable. And what, and what are the main considerations uh, and, and challenges that these companies face when they're considering where to um, um, locate their, their operations in, in the world as it is today? Well, again, I, I, I think that the, the general principle is that um, you know, your investment strategy follows your business pattern. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's pretty much based around where in the world um, you are active and and how successful you are and uh, and then sort of model the infrastructure you require to optimize um, your your business activities uh, accordingly um, for us it is always a constant evaluation of um, cost versus speed versus flexibility versus customer service um, capabilities and the quality and um, and to juggle all these kind of different variables that you have that influence that and impact that is is the um, the difficult bit. Um, but we, as I say, you know the, the way you you actually set up infrastructure these days is different from um, from even um, 20, 25 years ago. Or, and uh, and the way you you can adapt and open, close, and uh, and move infrastructure. It has also dramatically improved. You look at Amazon, for example, and the way that they that they uh, can very flexibly set up uh, operations uh, or you know move operations uh, depending on the patterns that they have in their in their distribution um, is, uh, is is quite something to behold. And when you go into one of their warehouses and you see um, the, the the degree of automation. Uh, that they have already achieved, and the degree of uh, you know the human intervention required uh, reduced to almost um, you know like a, a skeleton staff, um, then you can easily see how they can you know open and close and move these things much more rapidly than you could have done 20 years ago when you had to recruit people, uh, skill them for a year or two, you know, and then you were loath to say, okay, I've invested all that money, now let's kind of move it somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. This, and this is the idea of um, m- managing risk. I've been thinking about this uh, recently, that uh, what's going on in the world, and particularly when you're plugged into uh, social media, was- watching the news and so on, uh, you get the perception that the world is a very, very risky place. But I guess some of these companies take a more sophisticated, informed view of risk and they're able to do things and make moves um, that allows them to be um, um, to take advantageous um, positions with regard to other companies who don't have that sophistication. Uh, is, is, that, is that a right observation? Do you, do you see it that way or do you, do you have another view of how they uh, view, evaluate and manage risk? Yeah, no, I would agree that the, the more capable your tool set um, to allow you to analyze, understand, and respond to risk, the better you are prepared for eventualities. For for example, what we're doing uh, with, with some of our customers is around helping them to understand their risk position and flexibly plan scenarios. And then according to these scenarios, have response 
ready for eventualities, right? So we use sophisticated data analytics uh, and um, things like Monte Carlo simulations to allow us to model and simulate different outcomes depending on you know decisions we we might take, and that allows us to hedge um, better and uh, manage the risk better. Mm-hmm. But there's also, of course, an element um, of risk uh, that has to do with culture, uh, and uh, and when you uh, compare, for example a U.S. business run by U.S. educated leaders to a German business run by German educated leaders, you see a very different understanding of risk and a very different way to deal with risk and risk acceptance, right? Like the Americans are far easier risk than the Germans, for yeah. example. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Um, and, and, we, and we'll actually come to that uh, cultural aspect in a minute, given, to, given the fact that you've lived in so many places. Just um, uh, as, as we've been coming forward over the last 20, 30 years, and we spoke earlier about the way we have almost taken for granted the technological change that's gone on around us, um, businesses have changed in the sense that back in the 70s and the 60s and earlier on, businesses tended to be much more vertically integrated in that they did everything they needed themselves. Uh, And now, almost unknown to the wider public and sometimes even unknown to the people inside the businesses, uh, they're much more fragmented. And now they're arranged in these uh, networks and uh, um, supply chains or supply networks. So they depend on relationships um, for uh, control and integration as opposed to ownership as they did in the, fast, in the past. So which relationships do you see, say for a business like, like the ones you've been in, which of those relationships are the ones that are most critical to competitive advantage, supply chain relationships? That's a hard one to answer. I think, I think when you look at the, um, the benefits of a modular setup such as the one that you described versus the risks inherent in doing that, um, you know, at this moment in time, the benefits outweigh the risks uh, by some degree. However, you know, philosophy around that changes um, every ten years, right? Like, uh, I think when you when you work in strategy, um, you know, the, the the trend at some point in time is, oh, we need to kind of have this vertical integration, and and then ten years later, it's like, oh no, that wasn't a good idea. Let's try something else. So, mm-hmm. it's basically a series of experiments. The way I I, I look at it. Um, albeit maybe experiments at a relatively large scale. And it's not just about the relationships. Um, it's also about uh, a lot of other factors, uh, including physical and, and, and digital uh, aspects of this, because the integration that you describe in the supply chain with uh, a variety of uh, separate entities collaborating, working together in a closely knit and tight network, and the dependency between each of these players, small or large, um, has completely changed the dynamics uh, in in supply chains and the capabilities of companies. We we all know that today, when there is a small disruption somewhere, it has ripple on effects throughout the entire supply chain and can, you know, at the worst case, kind of lead to a complete standstill um, and a reboot of that network uh, might be required. And so, when you think about relationship, it is not just a relationship at an interpersonal level. 
It is also a relationship at a infrastructure and physical level um, that has become entirely different from before. And, and so our ability to maintain, uphold and develop the physical, the digital and the human relationships um, that 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 in combination determines your success or failure. Okay, changing tack a little now and coming back to the cultural aspect. You're originally from from Germany, uh, but over the course of your career so far, uh, you've lived and worked in many different countries, including Ireland, where where we are here today, uh, but also UK, US, uh, Switzerland, Hong Kong, and uh, Singapore. So, what are the cultural differences that you have had to adjust to? Uh, as, a, as a German that were the most challenging in these various places? Well, first of all, almost you will have noticed I lost my Irish lilt. Um, <laughs> I had to adapt to and adjust to. But, uh, yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, so when you left so when you left here, you had a slight, a slight Irish accent, Irish is that right? Lilt, I think everyone said that, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, um, unfortunately, I lost that. So, uh, <laughs> that's a sad, sad consequence of this kind of <laughs> global mobility. Um, anyway, uh, I have not developed a Texan slur either, so that's okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, but um, to answer your question, I think that um, when you look at different cultures, let me pick out three that are very, very different and show you, you know, the differences between these as I experienced them. Uh, let's pick the German culture, the American culture, and the Chinese culture. Uh, and and let's pick one aspect um, in business life that we can compare. In Germany, um, hierarchy is important, but team is also important. And to find consensus is important. So when you have meetings, when you interact with people, um, there is the need that is felt by everyone to to find consensus, Mm -hmm. yet the way to find the consensus is not necessarily by, you know, pussyfooting around difficult things. So the elephant in the room is is oftentimes addressed at the beginning, and then, um, you know, then you you try and kind of uh, calibrate and negotiate your way forward. You look at America; it's very different. In America, hierarchy is also very important, um, but the directness in meetings and conversations is entirely different than in Germany. Um, in the US, language that you use in meetings is highly codified. When someone says something is interesting, they basically tell you not to come back with it. Mm-hmm. Um, when someone says you know, a certain other sentence, everyone who is kind of familiar with this knows what is meant. Someone who does not understand this coming from the outside, like a German meeting Americans in an American meeting may walk away thinking, wow, this was a great meeting. We all agreed on things. And the Americans would say, well, we told him. <laughs> and, and so it, there, are, there are these differences in, um, in, in, um, in how people uh, socialize and how they, they grow up, what they, what they understand to be acceptable and not acceptable. They're very different between these, these two, for example. China, again, is extremely different from the first two. China is extremely hierarchical. Um, the boss is the boss and everyone else is more or less kind of a minion. And um, at the same time, the Chinese are very big on 
um, the, the the social, the the togetherness, the decisions are taken in a group, not individually, and there are very complex inter-social relationships. So for them, being a part of a team and group being more important than individual are very important cultural um, elements and traits and, and, and guide their behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Germany, when the boss tells you to do this and you feel this is not the right thing to do, you'd say so. In China, when the boss tells you to do this and that and you feel it's not the right thing to do, you don't. Yeah. yeah. Um, so culturally, there are there are great differences between these uh, between these um, uh, geographies. Uh, that makes for very interesting um, work when you work globally and with all these different cultures. And you have to be that ambassador between the cultures and try and help them to bridge these cultural gaps. And wh- where would you situate Ireland from your experience here on that continuum? I'd say Ireland is a country where, in my experience, diplomacy lives, mm-hmm. right? Like it really is, it is embedded in the culture to find the common ground, to, to negotiate towards um, something that everyone can, uh, can live with and to, and to seek this, but also to be arbiters, to be able to kind of, um, you know, bal- strike a balance between the interests of people. And uh, when I look at the the, um, uh, the Irish in the European Union, uh, you, you can tell that that they may be a small nation, but they have a disproportionately large impact and, and influence on uh, politics and also on, um, on on how things are managed. Yeah. And that is I, I attribute that very clearly to the to the to the to the strong uh, cultural ability. Um, to to um, to basically um, use diplomacy to achieve outcomes and objectives. So, where can people find out more more about you and your and your thinking uh, on business, on work, in the future, such as uh, websites, LinkedIn, videos, publications, and so on? Yeah. So one one easy way, of course, is simple Google, uh, as you as you did before. Uh, if you Google my my name, uh, then you will find links to all sorts of things. But one very good way to connect with me and maybe also to read up on some of my thinking is LinkedIn, uh, because in LinkedIn, I publish little articles, um, pieces that um, uh, reflect on different aspects, uh, some some of which, I mean, we we did cover uh, during our uh, talk today. Um, For example, you know, what is the future of work? how should young people think about career? What is do, do you need a personal brand? No, and uh, and and other things that I reflect on and then share, and we can kind of discuss. So LinkedIn is a very good um, forum for 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 people to connect with me. So Stefan Bungart, that's S T E F A N, Stefan, and then Bungart's basically how it sounds, right? B U N G A R T on LinkedIn. It is. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah. Stefan, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today to get those uh, insights and views on the world of business and the future of work. And I thank you very, very sincerely for being here with us today. And again, uh, the pleasure is all mine. And uh, thank you for having me. You're very, very welcome. Thank you, Stefan. Mm-hmm.